you will turn with me this morning to John chapter 13. We're going to look at the second half of this chapter. Last week we dealt with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And this week we're going to look at this concept of betrayal and how we see two two betrayals, kind of one definitely and one that's foretold, and how the Lord deals with those and then how we are similar to them. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us. We are in desperate need of your help, not only because of our lack lack of understanding and inability to understand, but also sometimes our unwillingness to understand, because we know that if this is your word, then then we need to follow it. And that's hard for us sometimes, so we pray that you would convict us of that sin, that you would break down those barriers that we have, those idols that we have formed that keep us from the gospel, that keep us from relying on you and you alone for our salvation. Teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to look at this concept of betrayal. And if you think about the concept of betrayal, it's very common today. You see it in television, you see it in our own lives and in the lives of others. And so why is that? Well, the reason, reasons for betrayal is, are as numerous as the people who betray others. You think about revenge and power and money and lust and all these different things that are going on, just to name a few. And if we're honest, we've all been on both sides of that fence. One time or another in our lives, we've been betrayed. We've probably been the betrayer as well, betrayed the trust of someone else. The cost could be a very small thing. Or it could be a very great thing, like a long-time relationship or marriage or a job. And this is just a few of the things that it could cost us. It could cost us any, numer- any number of things. And so no matter, no matter what the surface reason of betrayal is, the deep-down reason for it is that we believe that whatever we could gain by betraying someone is much better than what we have with that person or that job, or whatever it is. So you have to think about it in that way. And that should make us think of the Garden of Eden then, right? I mean, it should take us all the way back to the Garden. Adam and Eve had the Garden, had the protection of God, had freedom to live and all of his blessings. However, what did the fruit represent to them? It represented a chance to be like God. It represented a chance to have something better than what they had be on his throne, to usurp his authority and his rule. So what did they do? They took it, and they quickly learned that deception and the illusion created by the evil one were much worse than anything they could imagine. They were cast in the darkness, and therefore so were we. And so in our story today, we have a betrayal. You could say the betrayal of all time. That's the betrayal of our Lord Jesus at the hands of Judas Iscariot. Judas's name has even become synonymous with deceit and treachery. And so we're going to look at that. Folks who don't really even know Scripture know this story. It's a story that's been repeated by many people in literature 
and, and movies and think of every single action movie, every action hero that you probably could name at some point in his life has a former friend or associate that turns bad guy and they end up having to fight each other. That's like the theme of every single comic book ever written. All right. And so this is a normal theme in literature and it started here. And then you're going to see Jesus talk about the betrayal of one of his best disciples, Peter. And so we're going to look at that. What would motivate someone to do that? Again, we're going to look at specifics of this case, and we'll see how you and I, sadly, are very similar at times. And so with that, we'll consider two points, the heart of the betrayer and then the mercy of the betrayed. And so with that, let's look at the text, John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. Let's stand together as we read this text. John chapter 13, starting at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I, it was he it is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will be will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So, quickly, for a little bit of background in this text, I want us to turn to Psalm 41. And Psalm 41 is the psalm that Jesus quotes in the passage that we looked at last week concerning the one who takes the bread will betray me. You remember that? Jesus quoted that passage. And I think this helps us to get a good picture of what's going on in the heart and mind of Jesus during this time. So I'll read Psalm 41, and then we'll talk about it briefly. 
Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of, the, the, of the, his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when no one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my, clo even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his hill against me. But you, O Lord, are gr be gracious to me. You raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me before, set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So again, this is, this is David, and he's writing this psalm. And you, you see there at the beginning, he has this heart of gratitude. He has a repentant heart. And then he goes straight to talking about his enemies in verses 4 through 8. What do his enemies want with him? They want him dead. What are they doing? They are spreading lies about him. They only want the worst for him. This is bad news, of course, but this shouldn't surprise us because isn't that how enemies normally treat people? They normally treat them badly. When we think of an evil kind of enemy, they will typically treat us with this kind of treachery. Right? But then when we get to verse 9... This is when this story gets completely heartbreaking. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's a surprise. A friend turns against David here, for whatever reason, we don't know who that friend is. But a friend who was close, who was trusted, whom David shared bread with. We kind of get this in our culture a little bit. Eating together is a very big deal. We eat together after church every week. We, we love each other's company. It's a, it's a big thing. If you had someone to dinner at your house, you wouldn't expect them to like turn around and stab you in the back. That's just an unexpected thing. But in the Palestinian culture, to turn against one whom you shared bread with would have brought a curse upon you. That was their cultural belief, is that you were cursed if you allowed someone into your home gave them food, and then did something wrong against them. That was, like the, that was the sign of mutual trust and agreement. And so I think for this psalm, it helps us to kind of set the tone, not only what Jesus felt concerning the loss of a friend, because no matter what we might think about Judas, they spent three years together. They were probably friends at some level. All right, we want to think of Judas as this terrible like lizard man or something, but he was a friend of Jesus, and he betrayed him. However, what else does this psalm tell us concerning our Lord Jesus? He gets the victory. He's not going to be affected by his betrayer. David knew that the victory was in the Lord. Jesus knows this too. He knows that his Father in heaven will keep his promises. And so let's look again at John 13. 
I think that's a good look at the psalm for us. Again, who's the writer of the psalms? Our Lord Jesus himself. And so this, it's, it's always good to, to root what he says in, in Scripture, of course. So let's look at the heart of betrayer. So in the very beginning of the text, we are learning that Jesus, Jesus' spirit was troubled. It says that he was troubled in his spirit. Uh, literally there, the, the word is stirred up. Think of like water being stirred up, kind of a tumultuous kind of thing. You, you all know this um, tumultuous inner feeling anytime you've had stress or any, you know, maybe uh, you've lost a loved one or you've had this betrayed feeling. You know this tumultuous inner feeling. But we can't even begin to imagine the magnification of what Jesus is feeling as he awaits his own death. He awaits his death at the, for the sake of all of his people and their sins, living the perfect life, taking on the wrath of the Father. It must have been a lot of stress. I can't imagine. So he stands up before his people, his 12 friends, and he says, One of you will betray me. And what happens to the room? Of course, everyone gets stirred up. They don't know what to think about this. They look to one another, uncertain of whom he, of whom he spoke. They want to find out what's going on. The disciples kind of knew this was coming, if you remember from the previous from the previous text, but now we're getting this very plainly. Alright? It's very plainly, one of you will betray me. So of course the disciples are kind of like whispering amongst themselves. They want to get to the bottom of this. So John, often referred to in the text as the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, asks, or Peter asks him to like talk to Jesus, and you can kind of get the picture. They're all around this table that's really low to the floor, and they're all kind of reclining at the table, maybe one elbow on the floor and the other arm using it to eat. And so they're kind of laying back against one another. And then John just kind of looks over his shoulder and says, Who's going to do it, Lord? Who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus tells him, It's literally the one whom Jesus will share bread with. He dips the bread in something. He gives it to Judas. Judas takes the bread. And what do we read? That Satan entered into him. It's pretty pretty crazy. Satan enters into him. What's meant by this? Well, Satan attempted Judas. He had been working on him for a while. But now the wording takes on this different kind of flavor that he literally enters into him. Judas is now being directly influenced by the same one who was in the garden, tempting the first man and woman. It seems that Satan shows up at really important points in history to try to thwart the work of God. Think about it. All of redemptive history hinges on this moment. And so, of course, Satan is going to be right there mixing it up, trying to turn Christ's followers against him. Again, this is a fool's errand that Satan's on. We don't have a dualism here. We don't have equal powers battling it out, whereas our Lord Jesus is somehow really being thwarted by Satan, and he is somehow really powerful in and of himself. And so let's not get confused here. Jesus has complete control of this situation. Satan is only really a pawn. But yet, he's a pawn that looks at the scoreboard, and it's a billion to nothing, and he still thinks he can win. 
And so he's trying to do that. And so why Judas? We dealt with this a little bit last week after the sermon. It's a question that some of you asked. We don't know. Why Judas? But we do know, here's the things that we do know about Judas. He was born a sinner, right? He was born in Adam. He was born in Adam's sin. And so what are the tendencies of a sinner? What are the tendencies of, of every man since Adam and Eve? To subvert and rebel against his or her creator every single time. And so it just so happens that Judas's creator actually walked and talked with him and is sitting at the same table with him for three years. Not all of us get that. And his creator chose him to be in this elite group of 12 that would follow him around the countryside, watching him do all of these incredible miracles, listening to him teach the words of life. And think about Judas in this way. Judas is a lot like Mary. In some ways, Mary was chosen from the foundations of the earth to have a very special role in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, was she not? She's the mother of Jesus. She carried him in her womb, delivered him. He was a baby with her. And Judas, from the foundations of the earth, also was given a very special role in the life of Jesus Christ. He was chosen to be his betrayer. But just like Judas, Mary was born a sinner in need of a Savior. And by all accounts, Mary called upon the name of her Lord Jesus Christ, who happened to be her son as well, her biological son on earth, and became one of his children, as it were, through his redemptive work the same way that anyone else does. Judas, we know, did not. And so, let us not fall into the trap that somehow Judas deserves better than he got here. Better than what he received, because it would be the exact same trap of thinking that Mary was somehow deserving of her lot in life. And so we have to be careful there. Both of them were born dead in their sins, both of them needed Jesus. One of them called out to him. The other betrayed him according to his own nature. Granted, Judas had a particular evil lot in life. And why the Lord would choose him to do this, we'll likely never know. I guess we have that option when we get to uh, glory to ask him. He'll probably tell us none of your business. But we can ask that question nonetheless. And again, I realize that I probably just opened this giant keg of worms, uh, and we're going to move right on. But it is a, uh, it's an important question. But again, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that Judas somehow got a raw deal here. Judas got exactly what he deserved, death and hell, because he did not call upon his Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And so Jesus says to him, whatever you do, do it quickly. The disciples are still clueless, of course, of what's going on. And then I love this last little bit here, verse 30, and it was night. you got to get this idea of Judas leaving the safety and security of the light, not only the lighted room, but the fact that the light of the world is there before them, and going out into the darkness and uncertainty of night, 
never to return. We never see Judas in a positive light again. Ever. And so again, how are we like this? Like Judas, we're born with a sin nature. Every one of us. And unlike Jesus, many of us, or unlike Judas, sorry, many of us have called out to the Lord and we are saved. And he saved us. So how now can we still betray him? Make sure you understand this. Anytime that we sin, anytime we do or don't do that that is directly against the word of our creator, we betray him. And it may be easier for us to say, well, I wouldn't have sold out my creator because we want to put our own righteousness above that of Judas. We're somehow better than him now because we like to earn our salvation. Let's not fall into that trap. We forget that it wasn't Judas's 30 pieces of silver that put Jesus on the cross. It was our sin. He came to save his people from their sin. We are the betrayers when we sin. And we should be reminded that we are the reason that he hung on the cross. We are not better than this man Judas. We might even want to be like Peter here. Consider Peter. What does he do when he hears all this from Jesus? What does he do? No, Jesus, you don't understand. I'll go with you anywhere. I'll even die for you. I'm not like the others. Peter's regularly not like the others, right? And it's at this point we really need to watch our own hearts. What does the writer of Proverbs say? When pride comes, then comes what? Disgrace. But with the humble there is wisdom. And so we do right to understand that any ability of our own to not betray our Lord and to remain faithful to him comes from the strength that he daily gives us. It has nothing to do with our own desire to stay with him. It has nothing to do with our own ability. It has to do with the ability that he has given us. And so when we are faithful to him, it's because he was first faithful to us. Every disciple this night that we're dealing with here in Scripture, not just Judas, is going to leave him. They're going to scatter like scared little kids. And so it's not our own strength that keeps us with him, because if we were there, we would have done the same thing. We are not better than any one of these men. And it's his strength that keeps us to him. He keeps his people close. He keeps us from stumbling. He is the good one. Not us. So that brings us to the second point, the mercy of the betrayed. And so, as soon as Judas goes out, Jesus goes into this discourse. And I'll read it there, 31 through 35. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also, will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love for one another. And so, again, Jesus is speaking of how he will be glorified in his death. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how the Father will receive glory in his death. Lots of places in the Old Testament we read about this. In Isaiah, of course, 
49, 53, there are lots of places. Just uh, open that and read it. Uh, it will teach you all about how the Father and the Son are both glorified in the death of the Son. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. He is glorified in that this task that he has come to accomplish, to accomplish, he will do it. As a servant of the Father, he, the Son, is doing the work of the Father in heaven. And then the Spirit will deliver the promise to those who are chosen from the foundations of the earth, those who call upon the name of the Lord. This is a Trinitarian work. We're going to be looking at the Spirit's work a lot more in the coming weeks as we deal with chapters 14 through 16. A lot of the Spirit's work is detailed in that in those chapters. And, and Jesus is going to go into this long discourse about that. So we'll save that for then. And so next, Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. A very sweet and gentle way to address them, not kind of a, not a belittling thing, but more of a, a understanding, considering their sorrow that they must feel now. They're now 11, and their leader is about to die. And so, like he said in chapter 12 to the Jewish leaders, he now tells them, where I'm going you cannot come. You cannot follow. And they may be tempted to scatter. And in the light of this recent betrayal, and even the one that Jesus gets ready to talk about with their leader, Peter, getting ready to betray him, he's going to give them this new commandment. And he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Now, this isn't a new commandment in the sense that it's a new law. This is an exact repeat of Leviticus 19.18. This is something that Jesus has said before, several thousand years before, back when Moses penned it. However, considering the current circumstances, the fear, the betrayal that's going on, considering the redemptive work that Jesus is preparing to accomplish, this kind of love stands different than it did when Moses talked about it. Moses, what did he do? He looked forward to a Savior. Jesus is that Savior sitting there in the room among these people. And now he gives the command that his people are to do what? To love one another. And that we do so with the same love that he's given us. We've heard this verse a bunch of times. And let's think about it. Of course, we can't do it. We can't love one another to the, to the degree that Jesus loved us. We can't even imagine that type of love. But we can have that kind of love for one another. That sacrificial love. Think about it. Consider the road ahead of us in this life. I went to a funeral yesterday where a, a Christian man was buried, and, we t and many people talked about his life and how he served, but also how the many trials that he went through. It's a tough life that we live. Even if you have perfect circumstances throughout your whole life, you're still facing the fact that every day you get one day closer to death. We all die. It's a tough road. And then consider the fact that the world hates Jesus. How do we know? Because he said they do. There's nothing new there. It sometimes seems new and terrible to us when we watch the news. 
when we look at the things that are going on. It sometimes seems like a different sort of terrible, but it's nothing new. It's just bad. And the world tends to hate his followers as well. And not only that, we live, as believers, we live in a world that lives by the mantra, dog eat dog. Everybody out for themselves, even if it means you have to destroy others, you get what you need. They hate each other. They may not say it, but they do. They hate each other. They usually do whatever it takes to grab just a morsel of the spoils of this world, which are doing what? Fading fast. They last for nothing. They easily betray one another in order to get what they want. Bonds of marriage don't matter. Bonds of friendship don't matter. Loyalty is a subjective thing. What's in it for me is the only question that matters in this world. And so, brothers and sisters, why is it that sadly the same thing can often be said about the children of God? It shouldn't be that way. That's why Lord Jesus gives us this commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you with absolute loyalty, with sacrifice, as a servant. Love one another. And when people see that, what are they going to see? They're going to see something that is completely different than anything that the world offers. And that's how they're going to know that we are his disciples. That should be incredibly attractive to the unbeliever. We should love each other with the kind of fervor that makes people think, I really want to be a part of that. Because what does the world have to offer? Garbage. The exact opposite. It's nothing more than to tear you up and to spit you out. And the church should never look like that, ever. Is that easy? No. We've all been a part of the church for a long time, some of us. We know how people are. Sometimes we're that people that are bad. And we know that really we aren't any better than the world. We're just better off because of Jesus. And so to that end, we have to work at it, brothers and sisters. We have to work at it. We have to work at loving one another. Because we are what the Lord has given us to go through the dangers of this world. He's given us his spirit, sure, and that's all we need. But he has given us one another as well. The people of God are gifted with each other so that we don't have to do it alone. And if we love one another with the kind of love that we're called to, can you imagine the response of this world? They're going to want it. What's more attractive than being loved even though you don't deserve it? That's incredible. Because the world tells you, I'll love you if you do what I want you to do. We should love each other even though we don't ever do what we want each other to do. And so in conclusion, like Judas and like Peter, we are all betrayers of God. However, in Christ, we are loved nonetheless. Even while we were betrayers of God, he died for us. And there's no greater love than that. And it's the mercy of God that should continue to draw us back to him. We know that even when we betray him in our sin, he loves us. He draws us back. It's his kindness, again, that leads us to this continual repentance. We have to understand that. And it's the kindness of one another that will do that as well. And so, church, let us love one another in this way. You have to keep short accounts. 
Keep being merciful. Keep forgiving. Keep asking for forgiveness. That's part of that too. We'll stand out in a world that only seeks itself and knows very little true mercy. By this, they'll know that we are His, and Lord willing, by the love that we share, they will be drawn to our Lord as well. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to love one another in this room. Help us to love the church outside of this room. Ultimately, we are all on the same team. And we need to help one another. We need to be about your business, about seeing your kingdom come, your kingdom spread. And so help us to do that, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.